in the image of Adam. A very striking expression appears in Genesis 5.3, And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. Calvin commented on this. In saying that he begat a son after his own image, he refers in part to the first origin of our nature. At the same time, its corruption and pollution is to be noticed, which having been contracted by Adam through the fall, has flowed down to all his posterity. If he had remained upright, he would have transmitted to all his children what he had received. But now we read that Seth, as well as the rest, was defiled, because Adam, who had fallen from his original state, could beget none but such as were like himself. According to Smith, Adam handed down to his posterity that divine likeness which he had himself received. This is only partially true. The text makes clear that it is not the undiluted, unmarred image of God which is transmitted by Adam, but Adam's image. Heel and Delich made this clear. As Adam was created in the image of God, so did he beget in his own likeness after his image. That is to say, he transmitted the image of God in which he was created, not in the purity in which it came direct from God, but in the form given to it by his own self-determination, modified and corrupted by sin. From this time on, the image of God as it is transmitted is a corrupted image, corrupted by sin and by the consequences of sin. One of the consequences of sin is a tainted heredity. In many cases, excessive inbreeding or careless outbreeding have led to the genetic inheritance of a variety of physical malfunctions and ills. The image in a fallen world reveals the fact of corruption also. Central to that corruption is the fact of original sin, the desire to be as God, autonomous and self-determining. Men, however, have been unwilling to admit the truth about themselves. As a result, from Aristotle on, philosophy has attempted to deny the fact of original sin and to ascribe to man's reason and experience powers independent of sin. Such a philosophy has not been lacking in church circles, as witnessed scholasticism. Aquinas held that the intellect is always true, deception and falsehood merely creep in by accident. This is a necessary conclusion from his premise that we must assert that the intellectual principle which we call the human soul is incorruptible. Moreover, the intellectual principle is the form of man, form here being used in its Hellenic sense as against matter. After Aristotle, Aquinas held that the intellect is like a tablet on which nothing is written. The common herd of men are given to passions and air. The philosopher rises above this frailty by means of reason. This is, of course, the same psychology revived in the modern era by John Locke and made basic to modern education. If the mind is a blank piece of white paper, then the educator is in a position of rare power. By conditioning, he can make the child into whatever he chooses. As a result, conditioning has become a concept basic to modern education and also to politics, as witness Pavlov and Marxism. In religion, we have scholastic philosophy in the Protestant camp as Arminianism. Resting as it does on the same basic premises concerning man, it thus denies predestination and ascribes to man powers independent of God. Arminian revivalism owes much to this concept of conditioning. It was ready to acknowledge some element of sin in the fallen man, but because it denied total depravity, it denied total inability to reform. The blank paper mine had been besmirched by sin, but a dramatic experience by conditioning could remake that mind. 
the revival experience was this means of conditioning. The Reverend John Barrage was accused of exhorting his audience to fall. Won't you fall? Why don't you fall? Better fall here than fall into hell. John Wesley felt that revival experiences could condition man not only into conversion, but instantaneous sanctification. Men may not like the revivalism of Wesley, but they will readily agree to the more favorable view of man held by Aristotle, Aquinas, Locke, and Wesley. In this view, men gain varying degrees of ostensible independence from God by denying in various degrees their guilt and their responsibility before God. By freeing their minds from original sin, men constitute their minds into supposedly impartial and objective judges over God and his word. But independence from God is gained at the price of dependence upon men. By denying predestination and total depravity, men deny the omnipotence of God and his sovereignty and salvation. Free will progressively replaces free grace and salvation. At the same time, however, man, because he denies that he is totally God's creation, makes himself to some degree man's creation, by means of conditioning in schools, revival experiences, or elsewhere. When man is freed from God, he finds himself readily enslaved to men. This appears very clearly in those who are called mentally sick. They tend to dream what is expected of them, and to report childhood experiences which psychiatry or psychoanalysis expects in their cases. In his early work, Freud found hysterical women patients reporting instances of sexual interference, sometimes incest, by their fathers. These reports were along the lines of Freud's interests, and he had unintentionally planted such ideas into the minds of his patients, and they gave him their dutiful answers. Both Freud and his patients were influencing one another. But up to the spring of 1897, he still held firmly to his conviction of the reality of these childhood traumas. So strong was Charcot's teaching on traumatic experiences, and so surely did the analysis of the patients' associations reproduce them. At that time, doubts began to creep in. Although he made no mention of them in the records of his progress he was regularly sending to his friend Fleece. Then, quite suddenly, he decided to confide to him the great secret of something that in the past few months has gradually dawned on me. It was the awful truth that most, not all, of the seductions in childhood which his patients had revealed, and about which he had built his whole theory of hysteria, had never occurred. When people give testimonies about their revivalistic conversions, there is a sameness and a monotony in the reports. The terminology and the experience are monotonously similar, because again, a stereotyped pattern is adopted as normative and definitive, and the person returns what he is conditioned to give. To be born in the image of Adam means to be born in the image of a progressively apostate humanity, which is bent on freeing itself from God at any cost. The result is a progressive immaturity, as a man revolts against maturity, against the requirements of the image of God. A teacher has reported on the readiness of boys who are no longer small children to burst into tears, an immaturity once unknown in boys of their age. Not surprisingly, for executives of our immature generation, Playboy has an executive sandbox, a soothing desk accessory for harried executives. Use the freeform digging tool, sporting our rabbit, or simply run your fingers through pure white quartz sand encased in its own black wood-grained plastic sandbox, 12 inches by 12 inches by 5 inches. No doubt, if such a culture endures long enough, pacifiers for executives will also be available.
Man, in seeking to be free from God, is seeking freedom from responsibility, and the consequence is a growing immaturity. In terms of this immaturity, a student revolutionist, self-righteous and proud of his role as a deliverer of mankind, has written that, To destroy all limits is, in a perverse sense, to be truly free. To destroy is to feel free. This in terms of the new gospel, good news, two and two no longer makes four. These would-be gods, believing they have abolished God, think that reality will now conform to their imagination. Instead, they will be conformed to God's judgment. Earlier, we referred to the elitism which marks the intellectual. The intellectual believes that his rationality gives him an autonomy from God and from the herd-like emotions and appetites of the masses. As a result, he feels that he can determine what is good and evil for mankind. For him, the tempter's program, Genesis 3.5, is the epitome of wisdom, which he is called upon to impart to mankind. As a result, his proud sin becomes his gospel, and it must never be acknowledged as sin. Its principle of operation is, whatever happens, no remorse. Remorse or guilt can lead to a recognition of the fact that man is a sinner, reflecting the image of Adam, whose only salvation is in God. Freud, who saw quite rightly that suppressed guilt feeling was the source of neurosis, contended that, therefore, guilt feeling must be transcended. The only way man can transcend guilt feelings is by the atonement of Jesus Christ, or by God's eternal judgment on his sin. The universe is moral. That is, it is fashioned on the principle that any and every effort of man to be self-sufficient, self-existent, self-dependent is most certainly doomed to defeat. History is dominated by the dialectic of self-frustration. This self-frustration is an aspect of the image of Adam, a will to self-frustration, to masochistic self-judgment and sadistic destruction, by a will to death. <laughs>